0: What we need to look for is a clear legal justification that comes out of the United States government. I'd like to see one not only from OLC, from the Office of Legal Counsel and the Department of Justice, but also from the State Department that is uniquely suited to address the international law questions, laying out the case, having looked at the intelligence. I want to see that lawyers inside the government who actually had access to this intelligence. I'd like to know that they looked at it beforehand and that this is not just a post hoc rationalization.
1: But it speaks to sort of the slapdash and haphazard way this administration has handled this response in attacking someone who, by and large, most Americans certainly didn't shed any tears to see gone, but needs to be handled in a proper way
2: Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams, coming to you from a sunny and warm Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have two books out titled The Sled and How to Get Sued. Well, before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to take this time to thank our sponsor, Blue Jay Legal. Blue Jay Legal's AI-powered foresight platforms accurately predict court outcomes and accelerate case research by using factors instead of keywords. Learn more at BlueJLegal.com. That's Blue, the letter J, legal.com. BlueJLegal.com. Well, at the top of the new year, President Trump ordered an airstrike killing Iranian Commander Qasem Soleimani, the head of Iran's elite Quds military force. President Trump justified the action by citing Soleimani's decades-long tension with the United States, threats directed toward Americans, and the killing of an American contractor near the Iraqi city of Kirkuk. The question today is, was that airstrike legal? Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to discuss the legal issues surrounding that airstrike, as well as the circumstances that prompted it, and the potential ramifications, both domestic and international. To help us explore this topic, we've got two great guests for you today. First up, we have returning guest attorney Bradley P. Moss from the law office of Mark S. Zaid, P.C., Brad specializes in litigation on matters relating to national security, federal employment, and security clearance law, as well as the Freedom of Information Act and Privacy Act. In connection with his work on behalf of clients in the federal government, media, and defense contracting industry, Mr. Moss has been quoted in articles for The Washington Post and Politico. And welcome back to the show, Brad.
1: Thank you very much. Happy to be here.
2: And our next guest is Professor Rebecca Ingberg. She is an expert in international and national security law, bureaucracy, and presidential power at Boston University's School of Law. Rebecca is a senior fellow at the Rice Center on Law and Security at NYU School of Law, and she previously served in the office of the legal advisor of the U.S. Department of State. Welcome to the show, Rebecca.
0: Thanks so much for having me. Well,
2: Rebecca, let's start with you and kind of give us a little bit of a background on what the power of the president is to order an airstrike of an, in, of an individual, and how that decision occurred.
0: There are two main legal questions that are at stake here. Um, there's a domestic legal question, and then there's this international legal question. And we can, we can start with the domestic now and perhaps discuss the international separately. So as a matter of domestic law, the Constitution gives Congress, not the president, the power to declare war and yet most scholars agree that the president has some um, inherent authority to use force when addressing a an actual armed attack to the nation or perhaps an, an imminent uh, attack that is that is tr- one that is truly imminent in, in such a nature that there is no time for consultation with with congress and so if that scenario does not actually exist then the president must look to congress for congressional authorization to act and Congress has over time um, in the past declared war. In recent years, it has done so through authorizations to use military force. And so you'll hear um, executive branch officials talk about the 2001 authorization to use military force and the 2002 authorization to use military force. Um, The 2001, of course, was in the aftermath of the 9-11 strikes intended to authorize the president to use force against al-Qaeda and the Taliban. And the 2002 AUMF was authorizing the president to use force um, to address the security threat posed by Iraq. Neither of these authorizations, obviously, um, was intended to authorize force against Iran. And yet you will see some U.S. officials sort of toss them around um, right now, as it seems to me they're grappling for um, to sort of settle on a legal justification for this strike.
2: Well, Brad, what's the intelligence behind this? I mean, we've heard from a number of the administrative officials that there was an imminent threat and that was justified for President Trump to order this airstrike. But really, nothing's come out about that yet.
1: Yeah, and that's been kind of the uh, the the, le- the least transparent aspect of this. It's been rather concerning, not only from a legal standpoint, but more particularly from a public interest and public understanding standpoint. So, you know, as my colleague m- mentioned, you know, a lot of this is kind of built in the idea that Congress has the power to declare war, but the president has a lot of authority, a lot of discretion when handling sort of these, you know, urgent and exigent circumstances to respond. And so what Congress had done in the aftermath of the Nixon era and everything like that was they had built in certain notifications, requirements to provide information to uh, relevant committees of Congress when the president's going to act in sort of that exigent circumstance, as we know as like the Gang of Eight, as we know as the War Powers Act, in terms of these specific individuals and relevant leadership individuals who have to be notified. And so far, that largely has not happened. We're just now... Starting to have some of the relevant players, some of uh, the relevant members of leadership in the House and Senate and in the relevant committees start to learn the details of what it was that the administration was relying upon. upon. And there's not necessarily anything, quote unquote, illegal about that, because a lot of this implicates separation of powers uh, and constitutional concerns and prerogatives of the two different branches. But it speaks to sort of the slapdash and haphazard way this administration has handled this response in attacking someone who, by and large, most Americans certainly didn't shed any tears to see gone, but needs to be handled in a proper way.
2: Well, Rebecca, is Trump bypassing the War Powers Act? I mean, by just simply taking an executive action to take out one individual, and Iran has responded with a declaration of war, essentially. Uh, Is that how it gets bypassed, or what's going on here?
0: Right so there's two questions here one is does the president when the president acts the president needs a source of authority to act and so the first question is does the president have a source of authority in either the constitution or statute we just discussed that right the second question is when the president acts congress has Created through this War Powers Resolution, certain parameters, certain requirements that when the president acts unilaterally, because there will be some circumstances in which he is engaging in in a in, in a direct threat to the United States, um, he must do, do so with certain in, within certain parameters and 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 follow certain uh, requirements, in particular, certain reporting requirements, and. There are two major obligations that are relevant here. One is that the president is supposed to consult with Congress before introducing armed forces into hostilities. But the War Powers Resolution is a little bit soft on this. It says in in every possible instance. And so we know that the president did not consult prior to engaging in, in this act. Uh, and so did he violate the War Powers Resolution in that respect? Well, it depends on what you take, whether you think that it was possible in this instance. I think it's probably fair to say it was possible because we know that he was talking to Republican leadership down in Mar-a-Lago, hinting that this was coming. So it seems to that seems to suggest to me that clearly it was possible to consult ahead of time. The second requirement is that after once once he's engaged in such strikes, he must report to Congress within 48 hours. He's got to submit a report to the Speaker of the House and to the President pro Tempore of the Senate. Um, And we understand that he actually has done this. He's submitted a classified report, and that report is supposed to detail the circumstances that um, were necessary to introduce forces. It was supposed to include a legal justification and explain the estimated scope and duration. Now, We know that there was a report that was filed. We know that it was classified, so we don't know what was in it. But we also know that Nancy Pelosi suggested that it raises concerns with her. And the suggestion is that it sounds like there probably wasn't the the hard, sharp evidence included in the report that would suggest that this was truly the kind of imminent situation that would call for the president needing to respond without getting authorization from Congress in the first place.
2: And Brad, what are the consequences here? I mean, if it's determined that there wasn't an imminent threat and that there wasn't justification for this assassination, which essentially it was, what happens?
1: Well, and this is the realities of the wonderful constitutional republic we live in and the way the Constitution was framed is the only consequences are political. There are always never-ending inherent tensions between these two branches with respect to the ability of the president to act and the extent to which he has to keep Congress informed and Congress's ability to restrain it. There is certainly no ability to render what happened a criminal action by, you know, against the president or anything like that. That simply doesn't exist. The only thing that Congress has right now, and this is what my colleague mentioned, was you know, in terms of the War Powers Act. The initial finding was, it was reported to Nancy Pelosi in this classified notification was that initial part. If there are going to be deployments of additional forces, if there's going to be sustained military action, the president has a set period of time, I believe it's, I'm going to mess it up, it's either 30 days or 60 days, I can't remember the figure. 60 the, days, yeah. 60 days, thank you. To secure approval from Congress to authorize that deployment of military forces. Absent that, the way the War Powers Act you know cons- contemplates and considers a scenario the operation is supposed to end. What no one knows is what will happen if the president simply says, "I don't care that you didn't authorize it. I'm doing it anyway. We almost had this constitutional crisis in Gulf War One with the vote to, you know, go into uh, Iraq to repel their invasion of Kuwait. We don't know what would have happened then if the vote hadn't passed. If this were to happen now, we don't know what would happen because there's no clear uh, parameters, no clear uh, precedent of how to resolve it. its an inherently political question. And so that's going to be more than anything for the president, especially leading up uh, to his reelection fight over the next few months, is whether or not there's a political cost to how this was handled.
2: Rebecca, at the top of the show, as you were explaining the background, you mentioned that there was also an international aspect to uh, the consequences here or to the to the situation. And does that include uh, some of the allegations that have been made by Iran that this actually constitutes a war crime? And is there a forum where that could be prosecuted? And If so, how?
0: yeah, so there's there so yet again, there are two different major issues going on um, on the in the international law space. One is whether the United States was prohibited from using force in Iraq to attack um, Soleimani. And the other is within the context of an armed conflict is any particular action that the United States takes lawful. And that's where the issue of war crimes comes up, and that's where the issue of the president's recent um, proposal to attack, Cultural sites of Iran, which is clearly a war crime, um, is implicated. But on the first issue, the prior issue, can the United States use force in the first place? Under both treaty law and custom, um, states are prohibited from using force against the territorial integrity of other states. So there are certain narrow exceptions, but that's the baseline rule. And the exceptions include consent. They include when the UN Security Council authorizes force. Neither of those are relevant here. Consent is interesting because we're actually in Iraq, due to Iraqi consent, but Iraq did not consent to this particular operation and they control the parameters of the consent to use force in their territory. So we don't have either of those things. And so the only thing we're left with as a justification, as a possible justification, would be self-defense. And so here again, international law raises the same question we're raising in, in, in um, domestic law, which is, Was this? were we truly facing an armed attack or an imminent armed attack? Now, Iraq did not attack us, and yet we're using force in Iraqi territory. And so the question is, did Soleimani pose a, such a threat that um, Iraq was unwilling or unable to mitigate such that it was necessary for us to act in Iraqi territory? So that's the international law question. And then it's a very, very high bar. And none of the evidence that we've seen thus far come out suggests that we've met that bar. Of course the intelligence is classified and so what we're what we need to look for is a ju- is a clear legal justification that comes out of the United States government i'd like to see one not only from olc from the office of legal counsel and the department of justice but also from the state department that that is uniquely suited to address the international law questions laying out the case having looked at the intelligence i want to see that lawyers inside the government who actually had access to this intelligence I'd like to know that they looked at it beforehand um, and that they that this is not just a post-hoc rationalization.
2: Well, as we look at that justification, let's talk about what's going on in the media. I mean, Brad, we've seen a significant change in the media's response to this particular uh, crisis compared to in the past where we talk about weapons of mass destruction. It seemed like a lot of the newspapers pretty much accepted that and went with Bush's statement. But here... Uh, there's a lot of questioning of Trump going on. What's happening?
1: Yeah, so there's two parts to this. So one is that, yeah, you know, in 2003, and 2002, leading up to you know, Operation Iraqi Freedom and Gulf War II. There was certainly a level of uh, deference to the statements coming out of the Bush White House that what was being outlined, the explanations being provided about what Saddam Hussein was involved in, was true. And we we're also dealing, you know, we were, we were just months, I'm sorry, two years out from 9 11 at that point. And so there was a lot of reticence, a lot of hesitation, not only amongst members of the media, but a lot of political figures to push back too hard on it. Um, you know, the levels of nationalistic pride was still very high. And so there was a concern about how skeptical to be, not to say that there weren't some who were skeptical and rightly so. And a lot of individuals got burned by that. You see a lot of political figures to this day. We're in, you know, we're in 2020. We're still talking about people's votes on the AUMF to go into Iraq. You know, Joe Biden still has to talk about it. Hillary Clinton was still talking about it in 2016. You know, this still remains something that a lot of Democrats felt burned over. And a lot of members of the media felt like they kind of got, you know, fooled by the initial statements coming out of that White House. And the second part, though, is the credibility issue that this particular president has. He has very much spent the last three years trying to push this idea of alternative facts, trying to push the idea, you know, as Rudy Giuliani said, the the truth isn't truth. You know, always having an issue with whether or not he what he expresses, what he says is act, is factual, is actually accurate. And so that's part of the underlying problem he specifically faces in that the media is uh, picked up on in terms of why they're pushing back, because there's been three years of this fight, three years of fact-checking and correcting the president's statements. And so that's underlay as a more inherent foundational problem for the president, the resistance to just accepting hook, line, and sinker what's coming out of the White House.
2: And, Rebecca, as you have stated before, you know, there's got to be some notification to Congress of what's happening here. Trump has come out and said for the last three years, don't trust intelligence agencies. You know, instead, we're going to we're going to take the word of Russia for some things and we're going to take the word of Korea for some other things. Now he's saying that maybe tweets serves as notifications to Congress. How does that work constitutionally?
0: Yeah, we're really seeing Trump's delegitimization of his own intelligence agencies um, come back to bite him, right? Because he's been telling us for forever that we shouldn't be um, that we shouldn't trust anything the quote unquote deep state is up to, and now he's saying no, this is this is all you can leave everything in their hands and, and allow and allow me to basically bring us to war on the word of their of intelligence that he's been denigrating for years. Now, uh, you know, I'm inclined to take a more middle ground between those two polls. as a matter of classification issues I, I'm extremely um, sympathetic to the argument that we can't release all information to the public um, we burn sources we burn methods but that is precisely why we have an oversight system in Congress and so we have we have the gang of eight we have um, we have cleared um, staffers and cleared members of Congress who are who are prepared to receive on the intelligence committees who are prepared to and supposed to receive intelligence briefings precisely so that they can act as proxies for the rest of us who can't see the information, right? We're supposed to, at some point, we have to trust that someone is overseeing this process um, and that it's not simply a black box. And so in order for that to work properly, though, we, you can't use the intelligence committees you know, as politicized tools in this partisan hackery project. And so when we've seen, you know, Devin Nunes trying to use his position of power um, for part for a partisan agenda, that delegitimized the ability of the intelligence community, of uh, the intelligence committees to actually serve as a real oversight function over the intelligence community. And so that's a, so that's a disservice. And now we, we feel like we can't trust anyone, right? And so this is immediately so quickly turned back to bite the president
2: right well before we move on to our next segment we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor we'll be right back Predict legal outcomes with Blue Jay Legal's foresight platforms. Using AI to analyze thousands of cases and administrative rulings, Blue Jay Legal can predict with 90% accuracy on average how a judge would likely rule in your case. Plus, you can research by factors and outcomes to find the relevant cases in seconds. Stay ahead of the curve and learn more at BlueJayLegal.com. That's Blue, the letter J, legal.com. BlueJayLegal.com. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams. And with us today is attorney Bradley P. Moss from the Law Office of Mark S. Zaid, B.C., and Professor Rebecca Inger, an expert in international and national security law, bureaucracy, and presidential power at the Boston University School of Law. We've been discussing the legality surrounding the U.S. airstrike, as well as uh, some of the implications from it. Brad, do you have any kind of prediction here on how it's Iran is going to uh, retaliate. Apparently, Iraq has uh, suggested or demanded that we remove our troops from uh, that state. So it looks like our influence is going to be dwindling in the Middle East.
1: Yeah, that has to be kind of, you know, the $64,000 question that we're facing at the moment is what will the Iranians do here? I mean, this was a very senior figure uh, in the Iranian government. They certainly are not prone to just taking it, sitting down any more than we would be if it was one of ours. Um, And they will certainly want to respond. But at the same time, you know, the the leadership there is not necessarily suicidal. They have to know that, especially with someone like Trump uh, serving in the White House, that a a counter response to anything they do would be massive and arguably disproportionate, but it would be a massive response that would come out of the United States. And so they have to figure out what can they do to save face politically to, you know, to satiate their grassroots and to satiate the public, which right now, I mean, there was massive funeral processions for Soleimani uh, in Iran and various other areas within the Middle East. You know, what can they do to make it appear like they've responded without actually bringing down the hammer of whatever Donald Trump would unleash? And so you're going to see certainly some rocket launches, a lot of I would say skirmishes almost is the best phrase I'm looking for at the moment uh, within the green zone in Baghdad um, in terms of where a lot of U.S. forces are deployed in the area. At the moment, and this is just me hoping more than anything, at the moment, I think they're going to try to basically look for whatever little way they can to exact some you know, small measure of, of retaliation without truly angering Trump to the point that he just says, all, you know, all gloves are off. Let's go. Because they are not going to want to see what he would possibly authorize that another president probably wouldn't. And we've seen that with some of the comments the president's been making, that he's been talking about bombing cultural sites, would, which, you know, put aside international law, that would be a violation of U.S. federal law. And we're in a foul of, you know, U.S. military rules and procedures in terms of how we do not deliberately strike foreign cultural sites in the time of war. So you, they, they're not going to want to poke in such an unpredictable bear, no matter how angry they might be at the moment.
2: Rebecca, under international law, does Iran at this point have a, a legal justification for a declaration of war and uh, a counterattack against the United States?
0: Well, the question for Iran is the same question we are facing. It is, um, can we use force in a particular place uh, against a particular target? And so the the question they'll be they'll be facing is, do we have to? Is it necessary for us to use force in self defense um, in response to an armed attack? I think it's fair to say that this was an armed attack on Iran. Um, some will say that we were already engaged in an armed conflict, um, but that's a, that itself the existence of Of skirmishes between states doesn't itself authorize the use of force. And so I think it's probably fair to to label the attack on Soleimani as an armed attack. We certainly would consider a high-level attack on one of our generals as an armed attack. And so the question then is is just a question of customary international law, which which is, is it necessary and proportionate to take any particular action in response in a way that would mitigate the threat that we pose to Iran. So that's the question that Iran is going to be facing. And so that's just going to be fact dependent on um, based on what they're looking at and what they actually think the threat is coming from us.
2: Brad, what role does the United Nations play here? Can they step in and what kind of response should we expect?
1: The UN essentially is more of an advisory body, especially in this day and age and anything else. I mean, uh, there's no UN army. For instance, there's nothing like they don't have any ability to prevent one country or another from intervening. All of it is based off what is provided in terms of forces from member nations, including the United States. So it's not like the United Nations could intervene and force the United States out if we were to launch an assault or Iran or force out Iran if Iran was to invade Baghdad, anything like that. They don't play that kind of role, and they never have, arguably, in, throughout the history of the United Nations. It has always been the idea of serving more as a a moderator, as mediator to the situation to try to reduce tensions and try to bring conflict to a cessation so that the parties can negotiate diplomatically.
2: Well, it looks like we've just about reached the end of our program. So at this point, I'd like to take the opportunity to invite our guests to share their final thoughts as well as their contact information and maybe lay out what is coming next. Uh, Rebecca, let's turn to you first.
0: Great. So, um, so I would just add to that, um, explanation by Brad, the fact that the UN security council of course can authorize the use of force, but is unlikely to do so in particular, because, um, in this case, uh, both the United States and Russia have a veto on the the security council and so it, it, depending on which direction we're talking about either of those would be likely to use it as for congress and the question of whether or not there's anything congress can do congress does have tools at its disposal but the further we get into a full blown war the less useful those tools are going to be there's no way congress is going to defund the US military in the middle of a full-blown war, but it does have the power of the purse. And so it can actually enact restrictions now on the way the US, the president uses the military. Um, And so there and there are there are other means at its disposal as well. And so I would, you know, I would urge Congress to actually hold hearings immediately, debate this question right now so that we can get a public airing, so that the public as a whole can actually decide, do we want to go to war with Iran? Is this what we're actually looking to do? Rather than leave it inside the black box of presidential decision making.
2: Well, thank you. And your contact information for our listeners? (laughs) Of
0: course. Um, Well, you can find me at Twitter at Beck ingber.
2: Great. And it's I-N-G-B-E-R, right?
0: That's right. B-E-C-I-N-G-B-E-R.
2: Great. Thank you. And Brad, your final thoughts and contact information?
1: Sure. And just to follow up on what Beck had said, you know, this is going to be a very critical moment for Donald Trump as president, as something he hasn't truly faced um, in terms of a possibility of a full-out war. One of arguably his own making, you know, he's, in, he's faced some national security crisis over the last three years, but nothing like this. And particularly, we're going to see, does Donald Trump, the man who destroys all manners of conventional rules and procedures and systems, how does he handle this kind of situation where there are a lot of things, whether it's the War Powers Act, whether it's a lot of the gang of Eight notification, a lot of things that are built on customs and norms, uh, not so much based out in kind of binding law that you can inf- use to enforce through the courts. How will he respond to that? We've already seen some you know indication of his reticence to cooperate in the sort of a normal fashion of what we've been accustomed to over the last, you know, 50, 60 years when it comes to presidents dealing with deployments of military forces. How will he respond to that? How will he handle that? And will it require firmer congressional pushback, whether it's hearings or something else, to try to ensure that the legislative body, the one who actually has the constitutional authority to declare war and is supposed to be authorizing any sustained deployment, how much will they have to get involved to make sure they're fully informed and they can render a determination of their own?
2: Great. And your contact information?
1: People can find me on Twitter, Brad Moss, ESQ.
2: Great. And, you know, we didn't define or say who's in the gang of eight. Can you fill us in who those people are?
1: Sure. It's the leadership for both the uh, majority and minority in both the House and the Senate, as well as the chairman uh, or woman uh, and ranking members um, for the intelligence committees uh, in both the House and Senate.
2: Great. Thanks so much. Well, for our listeners, if you like what you heard today, please rate us an Apple podcast, Google podcast or your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com where you can leave a comment on today's show and sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for
1: listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes.